Ruth chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and drip, drip, dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law said she had gleaned saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, I have 
really enjoyed my study in Ruth, and I hope you've enjoyed. This is only the second week of, of most likely what will be four weeks. It's a short, short book. But um, I, I'm kind of kicking myself. I can't believe I've made it this long in ministry, and I'm just now getting to teaching Ruth. This is, this is an amazing book, and it's, it's filled with great themes that we can relate to. Uh, there's a lot of human themes. There's, there's peril and danger. There's grief. There's loss. And there's great love and a great story of redemption as well. We have three main characters, uh, of course, in the book, the first being Naomi, uh, who is Ruth's mother-in-law. Naomi and her husband and her two sons had to flee from Bethlehem. They were Israelites and were from the southern part of, of Israel near Judah in Bethlehem. And they had to flee because of a great famine. They became refugees. And they went to Moab, which is modern-day Jordan. And when they get there, soon after, uh, Naomi's husband dies, and she becomes a widow. And like many refugees, you're often thrown from uh, the frying pan into the fire. Uh, what seems like an escape only is an escape into something even more difficult. And so that's kind of what happens to her. She flees from her homeland uh, in order to find food, but when she arrives, her husband dies. Later, her two sons marry Moabite women. Uh, of course, I mean, they're there, and they're there for a lengthy time. They mean to just sojourn there for a bit, but they're there for an extensive time, and they marry Moabite women. And for a woman of Israel, this is not a good thing. This is a sad thing, because these are foreigners with foreign gods. And the Old Testament makes mention of the gods of Moabite and uh, these pagan gods, and it's not good. It's not described well at all. And so this would be a sad thing for her. And then they were married for at least 10 years, and her sons die. And then they leave these two wives barren. These two wives had been barren. During that time, they've borne no children. And so as you know, this culture was an extreme form of patriarchy. Um, there are other cultures today, of course, that are still extremely patriarchal. And, and this one in the ancient Near East, all of the ancient Near East, was, was very much so. Where women didn't have any power in their own or, or privileges really on their own, and, and they found their primary identity and, and significance in life in the relationships they would have with the men in their life. Her husband, who is dead. Her sons, which are dead. There was pressure on women to have children, to have children quickly, and frankly, to have sons, not, not daughters, because again, that's where the lineage would come from. And now she is finding herself utterly destitute without any men in her life, these two daughter-in-laws that are, that are foreigners, and they're all sort of facing an abject poverty situation. Meanwhile, her heart disposition is this. She believes God hates her. She looks at the particulars of her life, the, the circumstances of her life, and she's like, God's, God's plan for me and his, his uh, providence for me is bad. Look at this. God despises me. She says at one point in chapter one that he is rising up to testify against her. That's how bad it is. She believes that God is God, that he's sovereign, but she has gotten to a place where she no longer believes that he's good. Maybe you've been there. Ruth is the other primary character in his obviously the main character for whom the book is named. And Ruth means friend. Naomi means, uh, um, uh, it means like sweet or pleasant. And later, if you remember in chapter one, she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. I want to be called Mara, which means bitter because she has been so embittered against life and against God. But Ruth means friend. And today we see an even greater example of why Ruth really is an example of extreme friendship. 
And Ruth, uh, in this story, what we see in the first two chapters, is Ruth is not just an example of friendship. She is also an example of God's hesed, which in the Old Testament is a very important concept, and it's found throughout, which is God's covenantal, steadfast love, his faithfulness to his covenant to the people of God, his faithfulness to Abraham, to Moses, later to David, to all the kings, but ultimately in bringing the Messiah, King Jesus. God has a steadfast love and a steadfast faithfulness that will never give up, never quit, and in this, in these two characters of Ruth and Boaz, we see examples of God's hesed, his steadfast love. As Naomi returns to Bethlehem, uh, she, uh, she's heard that the famine is over. She begins to make her way back to Bethlehem. And on her way back, I don't know why she did this, you know, didn't do this before they left, but on the way, she stops and she pleads with her daughters-in-law, go back to Moab, go back to where you can have a future, uh, a potential for a future at all. Why? Because you're going to be a foreigner in Israel. You're going to be an outsider. You're barren. You're a widow. The likelihood of you ever finding a husband is very, very low. Go back to your people. Go back to Moab. Orpah, her daughter-in-law, does that. She goes back. But Ruth says to her, I won't. And she pleads with her again a second time. Go back. Go back to your people. But she covenants with this hesed, this example of hesed uh, to Naomi saying, where you go, I will go. And your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. And then she even takes it to the point and says, I will be buried where you are buried. Faithful, covenantal love. This is almost like a covenant of marriage. Of course, this is her daughter-in-law. But she's saying, I will be this faithful to you. May God make it so. And then today, we are introduced to Boaz, which means strength. And in, in him, in Boaz, we find a person who is strong in this world. He is powerful. He has valor. He has money. He has land. He has influence. But even greater is his strength of character. And he shines as an example. And Ruth shines as an example in the Old Testament. Of course, and for us, shines as great examples of faith today that we'll see. And my goodness, we need good examples of faith. In our own day and age, how few examples we have of people who have said steadfast faithfulness, covenant faithfulness, for whom there is not some dark underbelly or some closet that gets revealed to the world that is a horrible thing, or, or uh, to find out that they've been abusive in some way. And you think like, yeah, that's true today, but it's always really been true. If you think about it, back from Genesis 3, the Old Testament these two characters shine as great examples amidst a lot of people that are not that great, even though they're the heroes of the faith. Study Abraham, for example. There's a mixed bag in his character. His wives uh, also. Uh, look at uh, his children. Look at even King David. There's a lot of brokenness there. And Boaz and Ruth shine as people of faith. Three points today. We're looking at Ruth, the woman of faith, Boaz, a man of justice, and third, a redeemer. First, a woman of faith. Ruth 2, 1 through 2, I'm going to read again. It says this, Now, Naomi had a relative of hers, husbands, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So in spite of Ruth's own great sadness and trials, 
I mean, Ruth, Ruth has lost her own husband. Uh, she's been barren all these 10 years. And now she's left family and friend and everything that's secure, and she's in a foreign land. In spite of that, you see her getting up and moving out in faith immediately. It tells us that she went to glean among the field of Boaz, the relative of Naomi. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word gleaning, it doesn't really mean a lot to me. And so, whoa, we're having some trouble with my mic today, so I kind of need to stay put, and that's hard for me. So um, gleaning, when I think of gleaning, I kind of think of a really nice walk. Like, I don't know why. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But like, uh, like oh, let's go glean. You want to go glean today? Oh, sure, let's go glean. Uh, we'll grab some, oh, there's a lime tree. Let's have some lime. And, oh, here's some beautiful oranges and an ear of corn. Let's glean that corn. And it sounds, I don't know why to me, it sounds like this just sort of nice little walk in a field and grabbing some apples and oranges and things like that. But that's not what gleaning is. (laughs) Carolyn Justice James uh, wrote a great commentary on the book of Ruth, and she writes this. Gleaning was Israel's welfare system, a way for the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the alien to sustain themselves by scavenging leftover grain in the fields. In both Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 24, God commanded landowners to not harvest the corners of their fields. Let's say you had a large field, in the corners of them you would leave unharvested so that the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner could come and glean among it, which would be hard work. You know, the equivalent of it in our day and age might be uh, collecting aluminum cans in order to sustain your family. That's hard work, right? So it's not just a handout. It's work. But the the person that owns the land is saying, I will leave this unharvested so the poor among us can come and have enough food uh, to survive. Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 24. To glean was a public display of great need and poverty. It was... Uh, it would be difficult work, and it would be embarrassing. It'd be, you know, in your community, a small town like Bethlehem, you're saying, like, I am among the poorest people in this town. I have to glean uh, from this landowner's. I don't even have a job. And it, again, it'd be like collecting aluminum cans. Sojourners, refugees, orphans, and widows were the most vulnerable people in that society, living on the margins. And it'd be very easy for people Uh, that have a lot of resources to take advantage of those people. And that's always been the case since Genesis 3 and people living for themselves in selfishness. And because we live in a broken, fallen world where people tend to live for themselves instead of for their love of neighbor and love of God, God has commanded both through the Old and the New Testament and shown us his heart for the poor, his heart for the widow, the orphan, the outsider, the foreigner, and so forth, to say, care for them, church, People, God's people, care for them. Ruth, interestingly, kind of meets all of these particulars. She was a sojourner. She's a foreigner in a strange land. Ruth was a widow. And and in a sense, not literally, she's like an orphan. She's left father and mother and sister and brother to be with Naomi, her own, left her own people. And so she, in a sense, is like representing all of these, these people that live on the margins and face difficulty. But we see Ruth, in spite of being a widow, in spite of facing great odds, in spite of going through great difficulty, she steps up and walks into faith. And let's face it, this was dangerous for Ruth. 
Two different times, it speaks like, be careful, Ruth, uh, she says, do glean among Boaz's fields, lest you be assaulted. At another place, Boaz says, my daughter, stay among my fields and my servants. Haven't I told my men not to touch you? Why would he have to tell his men not to touch her? Because since Genesis 3, men have been prone to take advantage of, of women and anyone uh, in power and places like that, have a, there is a tendency to look out for self, to take advantage. And so she is in a place of danger by gleaning as a woman in this culture. It's true today as well, I'm sure. There's potential danger and competition among other gleaners. I mean, she's probably not the only person who's destitute like this and needing to find uh, food. There would be other people. There's limited resources. You know, people start fighting amongst each other. It could be dangerous, right? Refugee camps could be a dangerous place. There are the harvesters. There's the hired hands. Those are the ones that Boaz says, don't touch her. And then there's the landowner himself. She doesn't know Boaz. He has all the power, all the money. It would be very easy. It'd be very easy for someone in his position to take advantage of a, one, a young woman in this condition but he doesn't. He does not. In Ruth, we see an important example, example of faith in action. Having strong faith, and I want us to kind of see this as a principle, uh, and we could probably do a whole sermon series on this, but having strong faith is not tantamount to inaction. And you see her, she, you, uh, they arrive in Bethlehem and it feels like in the story, the next day she is getting up and heading to the field to glean in order to provide for Naomi. And, and she's doing so though out of great faith. We'll see later in this passage as to why this is so. She has great faith, but having great faith does not mean that you don't act. Bathing your life in prayer, bathing your life in God's sovereignty, and you're faced with an obstacle, it, it also means that you move out into action. Are you stuck in life? Maybe fearing a decision, a conversation, a difficult conversation you need to have with somebody, a tough decision, a move perhaps, a new job or new school or some. some uh, some decision that has to be made and it's difficult to move forward and you pray and you pray and you pray and you want God to answer that, that prayer and how do you know God's will? And we often get stuck. There are certain personalities I've run across in my ministry that, that get particularly stuck in moments like this where they feel like they, they just can't move forward until they get an answer from God. But how do you get that answer? The Bible's very clear on his will for many things in our life, but there's so many things. The particulars of our life are his secret will. His providence is not spelled out in scripture. His moral will for us is throughout the Bible, but whether you should move to Kansas City or stay here is not in the Bible. Is it? <laughs> uh, whether you should work for this company or this company, buy this house, sell this house, do this thing, don't do this thing, marry her, don't marry her, marry him, by goodness sakes, don't marry him, that kind of thing. It's not in the Bible. There's general principles you can live by to figure out whether that's true or not. But what I found is when you're stuck in life uh, and you need to live in such a way that you're saying, I'm committing my life to God in such a way that I will follow him and what I know to be his will, his moral will in the Bible. And I'm gonna, to the best of my ability, live under his guidance, his wisdom, his moral will. And then I can step out in freedom because like Ruth, God is with you. 
God will be with you in Kansas City, believe it or not. God will be with you in Phoenix, believe it or not. God will be with you if you are following God and committing your life to him saying, I will walk with you in your ways, imperfectly, of course, but I will walk with you in your ways. Then God is with you and there's such freedom. Isn't that good news? If you go to this school or this school, you do this mission or not this mission or this job or not, God is with his children and his providence gets played out. And that doesn't mean that you don't face danger and peril and difficulty. We see this. But we do see God's providential hand with Ruth. She gets to work to provide food for Naomi, but she does so by faith. And the underlying hero of this story, it's not Boaz or Ruth. It's Yahweh. It's God himself. It's ultimately Christ. The next thing we see in this story, beautifully, is this man of justice, Boaz. The author describes Boaz uh, by the word worthy, and in Hebrew it means a man of valor, wealth, and power. Boaz noticed, there's this young lady in my field. Who is she? And so he goes to uh, one of his overseers, like a manager of the, of the field, and says, you know, who's this young lady? Who's this foreigner? He says, this is Naomi's daughter-in-law, the Moabite. And they keep calling her the Moabite, and it's the author's ringing. This is an outsider. This is a foreigner. This is a foreigner. The foreigner, this young lady, this young Moabite woman. Then the servant tells her, him something extraordinary. This woman, this foreign woman, has had the boldness to ask if she can glean among the sheaves. Okay, so again, gleaning is not frolicking around in some apple tree field. You know, it's, it is hard work where you are like literally having to harvest grain to, for your family's survival. She had the boldness to say, as your harvesters are harvesting, can I glean from that which falls on the ground after them? Fresh cut grain, the good stuff. Not just the crummy old corner lot. <laughs> can I be among the middle of the harvest, gleaning after the harvesters? This is a bold, bold request. Now, the law didn't specify how big a corner was on a field, right? In Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it didn't say, like, if you got an acre, you got to leave a third of an acre. It doesn't say that. It just, it just says, leave the corners. And it, therefore, it kind of left some room for interpretation. And the selfish person could live by the letter of the law and say, every corner has a single stock for the poor. You know, like one stock of corn on every corner. Like, well, oh, well done. You're so faithful to God. Uh, so that would be letter of the law. But the spirit of the law was feed the poor. Help them feed themselves. Provide for them in such a way that they can feed their family. And so this is what Boaz does. He agrees to it. And he doesn't just agree to letting her uh, harvest among the sheaves. He says, drink from my worker's water. And then later he invites her to a meal. In Micah 6, 8, if you know the Bible at all, this is a very popular verse these days. It's a beautiful verse. It describes Boaz. It says this about the man of God. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. He's telling you, church, what is a good thing. What does the Lord require of you, the people of God, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Now, justice is a, a word we need to spend some time. It's gotten a bad rap today with all the social justice conversations, that kind of thing. But justice can mean one of two things. It can mean, on the one hand, like a you know, like uh, law and order justice, like you're doing something bad and I'm going to arrest you and take you to jail. Justice. That is justice. 
But the Bible also has a different kind of justice, and this is alluding to both in a sense. But to do justice is to make sure that people are treated fairly and equally. So whatever resources you have, whatever power, whatever influence, whatever control you might have as a person who walks with God, you make sure that people are treated fairly, that if if somebody works, that they get paid an honest wage, a fair wage, the same wage, and that the poor are treated with fairness just to the same with as, as those who would have greater resources. To love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Now, we have a lot of bad stereotypes of what it means to be masculine and feminine. And we have for a long time. It's, it's not as if like, oh, these patriarchal people, they were so bad and we just got it so figured it out. I mean, look at us. Look at us today. Look at in spite of all we know and our commitment to equality and that kind of thing, look at us as a culture and a nation, and I'm not going to get into a lot of details, but you don't have to dig very deep to see awful and toxic examples of masculinity in our culture. From, from Washington uh, to New York, like in networks, network, network rooms, to local people... <laughs> Uh, into pulpits all across America in churches, pastors. Horrible examples of toxic masculinity, horrible examples of what the feminine ideal is and, and bad stereotypes with both, toxic examples of both. But here, God is raising up for us Ruth and Boaz as beautiful examples of his creation design for men and women. And they both defy stereotypes, both in their day and in some ways ours as well. Ruth is not some wimpy uh, woman. Instead, she is this woman of great faith, a woman who moves out in action and strength and faith. And Boaz defies the stereotype as well. Ruth is impoverished in the world's eyes. She has no man in her life. According to patriarchy, you have no meaning without a man on your shoulder, somebody to protect you. But she doesn't seem to mind And what I love about Ruth, this outsider, this foreigner, this woman who's brand new to the faith, and meanwhile, Naomi has walked with God and been a part of the people of God for all these years. She's the one showing Naomi what it means to follow God. She's the one filled with strength, new to the strength, showing Israel what it means to be faithful. Boaz is a man of power, and he uses his resources and his privilege to bless instead of curse and to help instead of harm. How beautiful. I, said, I was thinking about Boaz this week, and I wrote this. Boaz is generous in provision and protection and praise. Pastors just can't help but do everything in threes. It's the weirdest thing. And, and it has to be the same letter, you know, three Ps. Provision, protection, and praise. Boaz says to Ruth, do not glean in another man's field. I've told my men not to touch you. Protection. Provision. He, he provides for her over and above what her need is. She bows before him and asks, why have you found favor in, in my eyes? I'm a foreigner. And then he blesses her with praise and with his words. And I love this. Listen to what he says in verses 11 through 13. And by the way, you know, there's this stereotype of the ideal man, the macho man, who doesn't use his words much. Like, uh, I told you, honey, when we got married, I love you, and that ought to be enough. You know, like, one and done. I told you I love you, you know. Poor guy. Well, I'm throwing the whole South under the bus. My bad. But like, uh, <laughs> but the ideal man, you know, like I'm, I'm not, I don't say a whole lot. So 
But this man, this warrior, this man of valor and power and influence and strength, he might have even been a military man. He says this. He rises up with his words to bless this woman. Listen to what he says. All that you have, why are you blessing me? Why are you doing this? Why are you being so kind? And he says, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been faithfully told to me. Word is getting out about her faithfulness. And how you left your father and mother to your native land and came to a people that you did not know before you. He gets it. This was a huge sacrifice for you. You left father and mother. You lost husband. You're a widow. You're barren. And yet you came with Naomi. What faithfulness. And he could have just kept that to himself. Husbands, wives, how often do you think something kind about your spouse, but you never speak up and say it? Bless one another with words. Your children, you see them do something wonderful, but you say, I don't want them to get cocky. You know, tell them. Bless them with words. Then he says this, the Lord, this is literally a benediction. The Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Listen to this, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May the Lord bless you, the Lord of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth, you've, you've come under the refuge of Yahweh's wings. You've become a believer. You had faith in pagan gods, and now you're looking to the one true God. You are taking refuge under the King of kings and under the Lord of lords. This is beautiful. He's preaching the gospel to her. We have wrongly defined masculinity and macho stereotypes. Real men do all this stuff. But look at the way Boaz is blessing her, protecting her, caring for her, and providing for her, and using his words to praise her. What has said this is? Steadfast love in the role of a servant leader. Ruth is an outsider, but he treats her like his own daughter. He protects her so no harm comes her way, showers her with words of blessing, And look at the way he shows dignity to her by pointing out, I have heard what you have done in all the ways you've been faithful. What dignity. The Lord repay you under whose wings you have come to take refuge. We could do a whole sermon series just on that phrase alone. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, this idea of uh, uh, being sheltered under the wings uh, of a, a large bird is, is, is throughout the Bible. And it's consistent of saying, like, we find our protection under God's wings, his feathers. How beautiful. If you Google this imagery, like what I I did, uh, there's like a mother duck with all her ducklings under her wings, and she's sheltering the ducks. From what? Sheltering them from what? The storms of life. Uh, From rain and wind and cold and and weather. And and so we shelter ourselves under a lot of stuff. But what, what Boaz is calling out is, Ruth, you have an amazing faith, a unique faith, because you are sheltering yourself under the Almighty. In a sense, what he's saying is this. It's not my wings you're finding shelter under. Even though you're seeking to glean in my fields, what you're demonstrating is you're finding your shelter not under a man's wings, but under the Lord's wings. Under his wings you have found, you have found protection. 
As I shelter you, it is the Lord sheltering you. You don't just have another man in your life, Ruth. You have the living God. Naomi feels as if her life has no meaning because her husband's dead and her sons are dead, and yet she's not fully sheltering under the wings of the Almighty right now. She's not finding her refuge there. He then feeds her. He provides for her. At lunch, he shows her what it means to be a servant leader. And so they have this meal together. He's like, hey, come dip your bread in the wine and so forth. And, and a lot of people interpret this as like, ooh, this is their first date. Because it's kind of a romance story eventually, right? But we're not there yet. This isn't a first date. This is a worker's lunch. And he is a servant leader. He owns this business, but he eats with his laborers, his day laborers. He's getting everyone together, and he's serving the meal. He's hosting the meal. He hands her the grain. He's serving her, getting her telling her to, to get water and so forth. And he provided more than they needed. Not just the gleaners are poor. Probably these day laborers are also poor. And he's making sure they have plenty to eat. They have so much to eat that when she's done, she has enough leftovers to take home to Naomi for Naomi to eat. And then finally, during that meal, he welcomes her to join his group of workers to harvest not only among the edges of the field, but just what she had requested among the sheaves. And then he says to them, as you're bundling these whole things of grain, I want you to leave them for her. So much so that when she went home that day, she brought back 30 pounds of barley. And we're like, Barley. <laughs> what are you going to do with barley? But for them, they could make bread, they could make flour, they could make... This would feed her for a long, long time. And he said, keep coming back until the harvest is over. He was going to provide for her more than she can imagine. So, do you see that Ruth acted on her faith? She didn't just pray for God to provide, which you most certainly should. That's what it means to find yourself under the shelter of God. But she also moved out in faith. She stepped out into the field of Boaz. When we're stuck in life and sometimes don't know what to do, God's will and providence is demonstrated as we move forward. Are you stuck right now? Is there a decision you have to make? Is there a conversation you should have? Is there something that you're struggling to decide whether to do or not? Know this, the Lord is with you. In the particulars of life, the Lord is with you. The last thing I want us to see is this. There is a redeemer. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi also said to her, this man is a close relative, one of our redeemers. Now, this word for redeemer here is what's called a kinsman redeemer from the Old Testament, which was a close relative. So people would get indebted back then, and God had all kinds of laws and instructions on how to deal with that. In fact, every seven years, you were supposed to relieve people of their debt. It was called a year of jubilee. The truth is, I'm not sure Israel often did that. Same with the leaving the corners of your field unharvested. Not sure everyone did that, but Boaz did. People, a kinsman redeemer would come along. It could be an uncle, it could be a brother, it could be a cousin. A male a redeemer would come into a family and say, you'd gotten into debt or you're a widow and you're impoverished and come along and say, I will buy you out of this slavery. Naomi and Ruth are not in slavery yet, but they're close. 
This isn't like slavery, like in America, which was in perpetuity, and you, you, know, you and your, your kids and your grandkids would be enslaved. It was more like uh, if I was indebted to you and I owed you $50,000, I might work for you for the next five years to work off that debt, and then I would be out of my slavery. But the Old Testament called close family members to come along, a kinsman, the kinfolk, and redeem them. And that word redeem means to buy out of slavery. And Boaz is a redeemer. In Leviticus 25, there are instructions for how redeemers are to redeem. And ultimately, we see in Boaz a figure of Christ, the ultimate redeemer. And although Christ had all of the power, you know, Boaz had power and influence and was a landowner and a man of great valor, Jesus is the ultimate authority, is the ultimate power. He has the power to create the universe. Everything we have seen and everything we have not seen, Jesus has created. And yet Jesus did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He became a servant, even unto death on a cross. The ultimate redemption, where Jesus died on the cross for us to pay the penalty for our sin. We were indebted to God. We were enslaved to sin. And yet on the cross, Jesus paid that full penalty and has redeemed us. In his life, he redeemed us. In his death, he has redeemed us. In his resurrection, he has ultimately redeemed us by canceling the curse on the cross and then being victorious over death. Jesus redeems us from the slavery of sin and death And Jesus is the refuge under which we must shelter ourselves from the storms of life. But friends, our problem is this, we don't. Not enough. Every one of us in this room uh, is seeking shelter from the storms of life, the anxieties of life, the difficulties of life, the stresses of life, and we go out looking for a shelter in the storm. And and many of us are turning to unhealthy things, bad things, self-medicating. It could be drugs, alcohol, sex, whatever the thing is, as a way to shelter yourself from the storm. But it doesn't work. You know it doesn't work. We're looking for shelter because life is hard. We're just looking for a little bit of comfort. So we drink too much. We eat too much. We look at something we shouldn't. We're, shelter, we're trying to get shelter from the storm because it is stressful. It's, it's, it's broken. It's horrible. We need peace. Where do we go? We also go to good places, like the best things in life that is offered, relationships, friends, family, marriage, romance, all these things that are beautiful gifts from God. But whenever we look to anything other than the living God as the shelter under the wings that we find refuge, if it's not God, if we're finding finding refuge under any other wings, it just doesn't work. It's not enough. Men and women cannot refuge, be your refuge, your ultimate refuge. Secondary refuge, yes. Becky is a refuge in the storm for me. She's my best friend. Um, she's someone I can talk to, cry with, strategize with, and, and hopefully a great deal for her as well from me. But she can't be my ultimate refuge. Uh, children aren't enough. They can't possibly shelter you from the storm, but we try desperately. And, and, and it feels like they're the greatest things in our life. And, and now having faced recently being an empty nester, it's like 
that you, you look to your children, you love your children, and you want to be a refuge for them in the storms of life. But what happens to a lot of parents is in a twisted way, you need your kids more than they need you and they become a refuge, refuge for you in the storm and it can't work like that because that's not love and you can't serve them if that's true. Power, money, it's never enough. Nothing wrong with the stuff of earth. God created all things, declared them good. But if we think the stuff of earth is ever going to be enough to give us a refuge in the storm, we're just fooling ourselves. There's never enough money. Look at all the people that have a ton of money. Look around the world. There are people with billions upon billions of dollars and ask me, do they have an ultimate refuge in the storm? Perhaps they do if Christ is. Looks, the Instagrammable life is a shelter in the storm for a brief time. I can look at my beautiful self. <laughs> I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about somebody else. But you, you, maybe you have just this Instagram glamorous life, Instagram, and you're so glamorous on Instagram, and your body's perfect, and you're doing the six-pack ab pictures or the bikini pictures, and you're getting a ton of likes. It's fun for now, but gravity's coming. <laughs> Gravity is coming, and it will take its toll, and nobody wants to look at you on Instagram someday. I promise you, it's coming. <laughs> <laughs> you can't be bald forever. I mean, my gosh. <laughs> Did you get that? Uh, respect, reputation, acclaim, it's never enough. If that's, your ju- if that's the thing you need, it doesn't work. It's never enough. Your church is never big enough. Not enough people are listening to you. It's just never enough. It's never enough if that's your drug. But when God is your ultimate refuge these other things can take their place and be the thing that they should be. Your kids can... You can love them. You can serve them without needing them in an unhealthy way. You can love and serve your spouse in a way that's not so needy that you crush them. A good friend of mine has just told me a story um, just really recently about how like, he needed to confront someone just recently about something big in his life, one of his best friends. And it was a, a pretty profound thing, and he was terrified to do it. Like, how do I bring this up to this friend? Because this friend may reject me, and it's his closest friend. If I go to him and share this, like I'm going to have to really get in his face about something and he's not going to want to hear it because it's big. And this, I was so proud of this young man because he had the boldness to go to this, this brother and tell him and risk the friendship because he loved this brother so much that he was willing to tell him the hard thing, the really hard thing, even though it may cost him the friendship. Because here's the thing, if your friendship is your ultimate refuge in the storm, then you can't do that. Are you with me? If that friendship is your ultimate refuge in the storm of life, then you can't confront that friendship because you may lose that friendship and then you're using that friend. You're not loving them because a real brother will tell you the hard thing when you need to hear it and then will be with you in the brokenness of it and never leave you or forsake you. So even though you are the one that needs to be confronted in your sin and you're caught in it and you're trapped in it, but then that brother says, and I'm not gonna leave you or judge you. I'm just right here with you. I'm gonna walk with you in it. But you can't do that if that friendship is the refuge in the storm. And you can't love your spouse well if they're your ultimate refuge in the storm because you're using them ultimately. Do you see that? It's not love. You're using them for your own refuge. But if Jesus is your refuge, all of a sudden you get freed up to love your spouse, to love your kids in a way that doesn't twist them or get weird. And like, I need you to never leave Phoenix. And I get a little weird like that. Or I need, you know, I need you to be this for me. No, I'm your parent. I'm your refuge. 
But ultimately, Jesus has to be your refuge. Not even your parents, right? Even Jesus has to be your refuge. Ruth is poor. Ruth is destitute in the world's eyes, and yet she found her shelter under the refuge of God's wings. And she has a strength that you don't see in Naomi, and you don't see around her. She has a strength and a faith. Boaz, a man of great resources and therefore privilege, but because God is his refuge, he didn't need another thing to be his refuge, and he could serve instead of take advantage of other people. He didn't need the acclaim. He could sit at table with common laborers and serve them and love them and have conversation with them and ultimately redeem Ruth. You can't really serve and love someone that is your ultimate refuge for you. You need them too much. And when they fail you, you're not just concerned, you're bitter, you're angry, and you feel like destroying them. It's not love. Jesus can free us, though, from our insecurity, Jesus can free us from our sense of self-worth and give us a worth that we could never have otherwise when he is the refuge in our storm. He alone can be the one that does that. Let's pray. Oh, Father, every man and woman and child in this room has looked to other refuge other places of refuge in an ultimate way. In fact, every week when we confess our sins to you, we, we see ways that we're doing that. But it's folly, Lord, it's folly to seek refuge in Wall Street with its ups and downs, to seek refuge in food and drink, to seek refuge in fleeting pleasure, so tempting but gone in a moment. Even in the good things like children and marriage and friendship and spouses and roommates and even those things. It's not enough, O Lord. Let us come under the shelter of your wings. Put our hope fully and finally in you. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.